You're listening to the Oil and Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 114. What's going on, Mark? We remembered to do First Friday Q&A finally. I know. <laughs> we skipped last month. Sorry, everybody. I wish we had an excuse. We just forgot to do the show. <laughs> Looking at the show notes, and we're like, oh, I don't think we did a first Friday Q&A for uh, the month of May. The month of May. So here we are, back for June. Um, you guys know the drill. You write in, ask questions. We attempt to answer them and hopefully provide you guys some value. Um, so before we do that, you want to talk about the on-road sponsors? Yeah, so I want to talk about a couple things. So we want to thank our on-the-road sponsors. So Total Land, the world's most advanced field land management system. Uh, they allow us to tour around, meet all you people. Um, they're great. They're literally the layman's virtual office. Um, I think we're actually going to see them in person during Lago because uh, they're in Lafayette. And then Lee Heck Harrison, I just talked to them uh, yesterday, Jake. They're global experts in talent management. Uh, Lee Heck Harrison is currently helping over 75% of the big oil and gas companies simplify the complexity of leadership and workforce transformation. So thanks to our travel sponsors so we can actually get around, meet all of our, our listeners, go to these events. If you would like us to come to your event, if you have a, a sales group, a conference, a school, uh, reach out to Jake and I would be happy to discuss the details. We just came back from a geo convention where we gave the keynote, um, and, and we like doing that sort of stuff, and, and the audiences actually really appreciate us coming out there. So if, if you want us to come out and speak, let us know. And then before we get into questions, Jake, we just have to give a big shout out to Paige Wilson because she just launched her show. Yeah, she did. And I saw the numbers yesterday, and they're actually looking really, really good. Really good. Oil and gas industry leaders, uh, if you Google it, you'll find it right away. It's part of the Oil and Gas Global Network. She's interviewing senior-level people in the oil and gas industry and discussing their backstory. And, Jake, I'll tell you a secret. She just interviewed Commissioner Craddock from the Railroad Commission. That's going to be a great show to listen to. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be amazing. That's really good access. Yeah. Really good actor, and if you if you see the line of talent that she has lined up, I mean, she has the movers and shakers in the oil and gas industry, and then to make it to put the icing on the cake, she's giving away two hundred dollars steak dinners. So if you want to go win a two hundred dollars steak dinner and listen to a CEO of an oil company tell about his life story, go go check out her show. We'll put a link in the show notes this one time. <laughs> we'll give Paige one link for free. And Capital Girl's amazing too. So that's not just like any steak dinner. No, it's, it, is, it is actually amazing. Service is great there. The food is fantastic. Big, great wine selection. Uh, what a cool place to be interviewed and uh, what a cool gift certificate to actually win. So let's, Jake, let's go ahead and jump into questions. Sounds good. First question up. Sorry if I butchered the name. Uh, Salim Albader, a student at University of Aberdeen. He writes, I'm currently doing a master's degree in oil and gas enterprise management at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland. My focal point is to look into the decommissioning business and the current models that exist uh, for the industry and the governments uh, to get what they need. I believe there's a gap, as you've pointed out in your shows, in the exploitation of big data analytics, particularly when it comes to decommissioning. My question is, how and where do you see the concept of big data analytics playing a major role in engineering decommissioning activities before a project is just about to start? Yeah, what a great question. This is something we've talked about a lot. Maybe I've never put all the pieces together in, in one place. I'm going to try to do it here. So in case you don't know what decommissioning is, um, different parts of the world have different rules. But it's basically when you take the well that's in production and you shut it down so that's environmentally safe and you don't have to worry about it ever again. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of obligations, contractual obligations, legal obligations. But one of the problems, Jake, especially when you look at big data, is the, you pick any of the largest uh, oil and gas companies out there, 
the crew that builds that well that goes in production, all of that data, they don't bring in the crew that has to decommission that well, you know, 40 or 50, 60 years later. If they've just from a planning stage would use that data and let the guys that decommission have access to what they're doing where they go in production, just that right there um, would save lots of money and lots of time. If, if they would build the well, thinking about decommissioning in the future, it would drive costs down and make things much more efficient. Um, but there's other parts of that. So when you have decommissioned wells, you also, there's different ways to decommission. There's different materials, um, different types of abandonment, um, you know, things like, do you fill the well with a fluid? Do you remove all the downhole equipment? Do you clean out the well bore? Do you plug the holes? Do you plug the casing stubs? You know, plug the annular space? All that's different, right? Do you put fluid between the plugs? Um, and, you know, where do you cement? And, and I learned this the hard way. You never call it concrete to guys that decommission a well. They will correct you in a heartbeat. It's not concrete. It's cement. <laughs> um, but you have all those different variables. And which one of those variables work the best? Which ones ensure the integrity of that decommissioned well? Well, right now, nobody really knows because they're not collecting all this data and, and analyzing it. That's another place where where big data and decommissioning would, would make a substantial difference. And then even looking at your contractors, right? So you look at the companies, even though the way you decommission at well may be the same, are you looking at the, your different contractors? Maybe some contractors are a little bit more expensive, but when you analyze their work over 10 or 15 years, you see that they're, 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 the way they help decommission at well is, lasts longer. So really they're cheaper. So there's a third way where you could actually look at big data sets in decommission and it would it would drive value for for your for your company you know and somebody that's in in, in engineering like a salim is um i mean that's that's a great place to start your careers to start pulling that big data analytics around decommissioning i think with your background in the enterprise management salam that you should link up with somebody who is an expert in in decommissioning uh, and i think together put two minds together uh, and kind of figure out where you can really apply big data analytics to the decommissioning. Perhaps there's something that, I mean, we don't even know about um, or perhaps something that you haven't even thought of. Um, so that's what I would do. I would reach out to some of the experts and yeah. go from there. And, and probably, yeah. And he probably also may actually might want to bring in a big data expert too. So it'd be three. Of, that would be actually probably a very useful, valuable conversation. Definitely. If the three of y'all just got together and just talked through this. Exactly. I think that that's really how you find that, that sweet spot and find that pain point that you're looking to actually solve. Yeah. And, you know, one last thing in here, the, the piece that, that a lot of people don't think about because they think about the well and the well bore, is you also have to think of the top sides. How do you remove that platform? What's the best way to move it? Do you blow it up? Do you cut it up? Um, you know, there's before you even start decommissioning at well, you got to remove that top side. And there's, once again, another place where some big data sets would, would actually help you become much more efficient. Yeah, big data is going to change the industry, all aspects of it. I agree 100%. Uh, we're, in, we're in inning one of nine right now. Yeah, in the very beginning, <laughs> the very beginning of inning number one. <laughs> I think we're still at the national anthem, maybe not in inning <laughs> one. I'm still getting a beer. <laughs> all right, so next question is from Brent Lyon. He's the owner of 360 Financial Strategies. Uh, it's a little bit of a longer question, so just bear with me. I'm just going to go ahead and read this. Uh, today, I read the article, Here's How U.S. Carbon Pollution Stacks Up with the rest of the world by John Schoen on the CNBC website. Uh, of course, there's much to do with whether or not uh, President Trump stays committed to the Paris Accord. Obviously, that's been in the news a lot this week. Uh, I dug a bit further to actually look at the data quoted from the World Bank webpage. What was interesting was the omission of historical trends in comparing China and the U.S. 
The article reviews the CO2 emissions of major economies around the globe and points out that China is the largest contributor of CO2, followed by the U.S. On a per capita basis, the author states that the U.S. is the leading emitter in the world, and the chart directly beneath that comment shows that Saudi Arabia is the worst. But we all know that CO2 emissions is not static. It is constantly changing. The World Bank's website shows the yearly data going back to 1960. As you chart China's per capita emissions from that time, it has steadily been climbing, and during the last decade, the chart shows a profound upward surge. On the other hand, the U.S. has actually been declining in per capita CO2 emissions fairly steadily since around 1973. In part, I believe, as you have pointed out many times in your show, the efficiencies, the new technologies have been a major contributor to this decline. Uh, it's unfortunate Mr. Schoen admits this rather important data. So I don't think there was actually a question. I think it was more of just uh, a topic to kind of dive into. Yeah, you and I could spend the next three hours talking about this, especially based on uh, uh, Trump just pulling us out of the, uh, Claire, uh, the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, so a whole bunch of parts and pieces here. One of the things, Jake, that bothers me a lot when you have these type of discussions, and people get very emotional and they're very attached to one side or the other, is m most of them, and I would say 99%, maybe even higher, 99.99, don't understand the science, don't understand any of the facts behind all this. So our air pollution peaked in 1978. We're over that, that hump. Every year since that 1978, our air and water gets cleaner and cleaner, including CO2. So CO2 is going down. One of the main producers of greenhouse of CO2 emissions is the production of electricity in the U.S. It's about 29 percent. Uh, 27 percent that's produced is caused by transportation, and then big industry is about 21 percent. And then, believe it or not, agriculture is, it creates a lot too, which is funny. Um, but what's happening here in the U.S. is we're switching from coal to natural gas to generate electricity. So our CO2 emissions are steadily dropping, and they won't go back up. But a couple of parts that people just don't understand. So, so the first thing is, most people worry about CO2 because of the greenhouse effect. Now, the greenhouse effect is a natural phenomenon. The greenhouse effect was here way before humans, and if we blow this planet up, it will be here after humans. It basically allows our planet to be warmer than it should. And I don't want to get into the laws of thermodynamics and all that sort of stuff, but I know how this works. So when you think about greenhouse gases, the fear is that certain greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide is causing our plant to heat up faster than normal. So number one, our current CO2 emission is, uh, 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 component in the air is about 400 parts per million. Before humans existed, it had gotten as high as 5,000 parts per million, Jake. So it's natural for our CO2 emissions to go up and down. If you think about our history, the uh, Pleistocene era, the, the uh, Triassic era, all those eras were much had much more CO2. Our Earth was much warmer and wetter, right? It's a natural cycle. What everybody wants to say is that man has influenced that natural cycle and the planet's heating up quicker because of man's activity. That has not been proven yet, and I actually don't think it's true. Um, and, and I'm talking that from a scientific point of view. The other thing is, if you're really worried about CO2, I challenge you to do something real quick. Go into your browser of choice, go into Google, and type top greenhouse gases and see what comes up. If you do that, you'll see that water vapor is the number one greenhouse gas in the world. It's 85% of the greenhouse effect is water vapor. Carbon dioxide is 4%. So, Jake, if you had a problem and you could affect 85% of fixing that problem of 4%, which one would you pick? Mm, I'm going to say 85%. <laughs> yeah, most people would, right? Um, why are we talking about something that's only 4% of the problem? Why are we not talking about something that's 85% of the problem? And, and there's there's more science behind this, but it's um, 
you know, if you look at, if you're really worried about carbon pollution, you need to work, look at other developing countries, not us. You need to look at China and you look at India. Like I said, we produce less carbon dioxide every year. That trend's going to continue. The same thing's going on in Europe. And, you know, that's a bell curve and we're way past the peak of that bell curve. We're sliding down the, the back end of it. Um, and it will, will continue. Same way with, you know, the other greenhouse gases that if you're old enough, you remember, uh, uh, Hydrofluor, hydrofluoric carb, carbines, the stuff is in s- s- hairspray, and chlorofluoric chlorides, carbines, all that stuff's gone. We've gotten rid of those. Um, ozone, nitrous oxide, methane, those are all also greenhouse gases, but the number one greenhouse gas is water vapor. Um, and, and if you want to know what's going on and reason that CO2 has become such a big deal, it's a, it's a geopolitical thing. It's a way for some of our leaders to number one kind of sidetrack the what's really going on in the conversation. And number two, it's a way to, to to move money around. Because if you believe CO2 is causing man's involvement with the earth warming up involves the CO2 emissions and you start uh, implementing laws and strategies to reduce CO2 emission, you start placing taxes on stuff, and that tax generates revenue. It also drives the artificial growth of investment into things like solar and wind. And please, no hate mail. I'm a huge fan of solar and wind. It definitely has a place in our energy mix. You know, I'm very proud that Texas is the number one wind generating state in the country and just recently became the number one uh, uh, solar generating state in our country. Um, nothing against either of those, those sources, but hydrocarbons are so vital to our modern life and everything we do. Don't think energy. Think of stuff. Think of materials. Think of plastics and adhesive and paints. All that comes from hydrocarbons. So, you know, Brent, thanks for reaching out. You're right, is that the CO2 emissions are not static. They're constantly changing. And you're also right that our media tends not to talk about the emerging economies' contributions to CO2, which is massive. Now, I give China credit. They have started a very aggressive plan of getting rid of their coal-fired power plants and moving to natural gas, which is going to help them lower their CO2 emissions. But, Jake, there's other emerging economies coming right behind them. There's India. India will eventually pass up China both in GDP and population, which is crazy. You know, via Vietnam, parts of Russia. So all these emerging economies, and you were talking about this while we were off the mic, you know, nobody interfered with Europe and with the U.S. when we went through our industrial revolution, right, where we polluted the most. Then we gained the knowledge and the money to help start cleaning up that pollution, and we decided it was important as as a a population. So we started cleaning stuff up. So now we're over the hump, and we'll pollute less and less every year, right? Same thing's going on in Europe. Is it fair for us to reach out to other developing countries and say you have to do the same thing? Nobody did it to us, right? Um, you know that. Then you get in the whole philosophical debate on do you let these developing countries mature at the rate that they want to mature because it's their people. So a bunch of moving parts here. Um, you know, perfect timing, Brett, because of the Trump pulling out the Paris Climate Accord. Um, and hopefully, it's kind of answered your question. And I'm hoping that people listen to actually go out and do what I say. Go. Google top greenhouse gases and and see what the truth is. Look at the science. So let's dive into let's give like some quick bullet points on what was because I I haven't looked at any news other than what I've just seen in the headlines. I haven't actually dived into anything. So this is an honest question. Uh, what are President Trump's reasons for pulling out of the Paris Accord? What are we trying to accomplish by pulling out? So I think that it was a bad deal from a business point of view and you know trump ran on the campaign america first the paris climate accord is not putting america first it's actually 
causing us to pay for other people to do stuff that they can't accomplish. So I, I think pulling out of it makes sense. And and what mark my words, how much you make a bet, he's going to pull out of it. Because if, if people remember history, this is something that should have been put in front of Congress to vote on, to agree upon. But our last administration knew that it wouldn't make it through. So they made an executive order, which is actually kind of doing it in, in run around our Constitution. How much you make a bet that we're going to pull out the, the Paris Climate Accord, then once now we have negotiation power because we're not part of it anymore, we're going to go back and we're going to renegotiate what we want to do in this same agreement, and then that will be put in front of Congress to vote on like it should have been. Watch. That that would actually make sense. Yep. <laughs> Because right now there's Especially nothing with everybody up in arms. We've already agreed to it, and we agreed to it in a way that kind of cheated the American process. So that's what I think is going to happen. Now, I don't have a crystal ball, and you know, Trump doesn't call me and ask my you know, strategic you know, thoughts. I heard he might be a listener. So <laughs> I actually heard he may be a listener too, which is funny. If you, if you are, I would love to hear from you. I actually would love to get you on Pages show. That would be awesome. All right. So without getting too political, let's move on to the next one. Uh, this guy is anonymous. Uh, he works at one of the super majors. Uh, he writes, Jake, I've been working for a big oil company for 11 years and I want to start my own business. I know that I have a marketable service and I have the industry knowledge and connections and know exactly the problem that I would solve. Thanks, Mark. He puts that in parentheses. <laughs> uh, my question to you is how do you best go about working at your day job while at the same time launching a startups? Uh, any tips for advice that you could give would be much appreciated and love the show guys. Um, so Mark and I were actually talking about this before we turned to the mic. Um, so if I understand you right, it sounds like you're going to be providing a service rather than a product. Um, and it's always challenging to manage a day job and launch your own venture, but it's even harder if you're launching something that's a service because service service type businesses require hours. You're exchanging hours for dollars. Um, and typically those hours are going to be at your day job. Um, so I think the best advice I can give there would be, you know, try to try to find somebody that you can bring onto your team, um, either as a partner or as an employee. Um, if you can get them to work for sweat equity, that's like the best, uh, I guess it's the best situation because it would allow you to still be at your day job. Um, it would lower your risk. Um, and still allow you to, to pursue that. Uh, unless you're absolutely essential to the success of the company, if you are the product, um, then that would prove to be extremely challenging. Um, so it's kind of hard, it's kind of hard to give a really, really pinpoint answer without knowing exactly what kind of business you're trying to get into. Um, but hopefully, hopefully that somewhat answers it. Uh, I would just find people to try to bring on board with you. Yeah, and, and as somebody that has done this before, both Jake and I have done this before, there's a couple of pointers I'll give you just out of the gate. So first thing, big mistake I made is I went in, when I started Mobile Point, I had six months worth of cash, right, which I thought was plenty because people tell you you need three months, and I had six months. What I didn't figure in is actual cash flow. So even though I was profitable, so even though I had signed contracts, I had delivered work, and I was being paid, my first clients, uh, because I was worried about actual things like money, I let them dictate payment terms. So my first clients had 60 or 90 day payment terms, which means that technically on paper I was profitable, but I ran out of cash. And if it wasn't for the fact that I had other sources of income, we would have went belly up. So you know, make sure you have plenty of cash. Make sure you also look at things like payment terms in your contracts. Um, you know, now we don't take 60 or 90 days. We, we, won't, we just won't work with that. We work on 30 or, or less. Um, another thing is be very open-minded, be very careful that you don't come up with an idea, go out and sell it, and then try to repeat it. 
Um, that's what we did in the beginning. It was a mistake. And I just, because I'm a decent salesperson, I sold it and it wasn't a good idea. And I spent the next year beating my head against the wall, trying to re replicate. And I couldn't, eventually I realized I needed to do something different, which is what we do now. So be open-minded, um, you know, be very aware of what your, your client base is telling you, um, you know, look at things like payment terms. Um, and then, you know, like Jake said, it's, um, it's work. There, there's no uh, if, ands, or buts about that. You have to be prepared to do work. And so really you can have two jobs for a while. And the quicker you can make that switch from your day job to your passion job that actually makes money, the better you'll be. I think that's where a lot of people fail is, is just making the leap to start. So if at least if you're committing to starting, that's a good thing, but then it's continuing. Um, especially if you're working a nine to five. So then your second job starts at say six till, I don't know, one in the morning. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions about the actual amount of work that's required to be successful, um, at starting a business. Pretty much the, uh, I would say the rule of thumb is, Think about how much work it's going to require for you to be successful with just your standard business processes and then multiply that by 10. And that's probably an accurate number. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. And so what happens, I think, especially on social media, you see a lot of these overnight successes, which I'm telling you now, an overnight success is an oddity. It's rare. It doesn't happen. The guys that are consistently successful, it's work. It's grind. It's hours. But you don't see those plastered all over Facebook, all over YouTube. You only see the ones Most that... Most overnight successes are like, you know, 10 years in the making. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, you have to be willing to do the work and make sure that you have the ability to do that. But you are right, Jake. You and I both see a lot of people who want to be an entrepreneur in this industry, who have a good idea. They just never make the jump. And, and I get it. I was scared. I was scared to death. In fact, one of my longtime friends teases me because years ago I told him I'd never work for myself because I like that security of having that paycheck, of having somebody else worry about insurance and all that sort of stuff. And to this day, he gives me grief. You know, look how successful you are now working for yourself. And I go, I know, I know. But making that jump is, is really hard. And, and, I, and I get it, but you have to make that jump. Yep. And that's where everybody fails. Uh, it's where a lot of people fail, that's for sure. Uh, next question up is from Kyle Chambers. He, he works in supply chain at the AVK Group. Hey guys, great show. What are your thoughts on supply chain in oil and gas? That's pretty open-ended. Okay. Do you think uh, things will be changing because of new technologies and people, or do you think we will continue to run supply chain in the same way that we always have? Ooh, I could spend a day talking about this. So. Uh, great. I think it's going to be really, really different, to be honest with you. Great question, Kyle. So supply chain has been an issue in this industry for as long as I've been in it for everybody. Upstream, midstream, downstream of service. Um, you see weird stuff that just doesn't exist in other verticals. You'll off, often see in big companies multiple supply chains. So they may have a geographic supply chain. They may have a product line supply chain. So they may have a North American supply chain, and they may have, uh, you know, coil tube and supply chain, both within the same company, which, which is very inefficient. The more you can leverage your supply chain globally as one supply chain, the more efficient you are, the better deals you drive, the more you drive costs down, the more um, guaranteed you have stuff when you need it. Um, but for years, this industry just didn't do that. I'm seeing stuff, Jake, happen in the last couple of years that's crazy. At, at um, National Oil Well, we learned about them putting RFID tags into drill stem. Right, so as that drill sim is being used to drill a well, it's automatically tagged in numbers. They know exactly where it is. It, there's technology automating something that used to be done literally on paper with somebody writing stuff down. Um, I've seen a bunch of work by a bunch of very smart companies. Talking about entrepreneurs, this is a place where I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs where they come in and they tag everything that is in a warehouse. So now the machine knows what's in the warehouse, where everything is, and the machine can actually route the quickest way to move forklifts to get to that stuff. I actually got a chance 
uh, it's about two years ago to go to a, a National Oil Varco brand new warehouse, and Jake, the forklifts are driving themselves. They're, they know where everything is. They go get it. And I'm not talking about one pound bags of screws. I'm talking about 60 inch ball, 60 inch gate valves, you know, a couple tons. They know where everything is. They go pick it up and they bring it to the table to, um, to pack and order. Well, that's driving super efficiencies. Another thing you can see, and it's happening right now, is just in time delivery, like they do for automotive, where while they're drilling a well, the parts and pieces they need are going to show up at the exact time they need it. The way it's done now is that stuff's sitting in a warehouse, which is eating up capital and eating, eating up time because somebody has to now go to the warehouse. So the, the, the manufacturer delivers it to the warehouse. Then somebody has to go get it from the warehouse and bring it to the well site where there's a bunch of inefficiencies right there. What if the manufacturer delivers it to your well site in the exact time that you need it? So you're seeing that starting to happen. You're seeing the, the large companies starting to partner with a lot of their supply companies and help them produce uh, – zero defect products or as close to zero defect products as you can. So that's another place where technology has changed stuff. Um, you're also seeing stuff change from a people point of view where people are negotiating deals now where I'm not buying your, um, you know, your, 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 whatever your, your threaded studs. I'm not gonna buy those in bulk anymore. I'm gonna only buy the ones that we use, right. That, that meet our standards. And if they fail, I'm not paying for it. Well, that drives a different people behavior in the manufacturers. If you're only getting paid for the one that passes a quality control, you're gonna make sure that everything you deliver passes quality control. So a bunch of changes it's needed. I mean, it will continue to change. I, I think we're going to see, um, some real efficiencies, especially offshore being driven strictly from supply chain. And that doesn't necessarily mean beating a vendor up over price. I just had a meeting today with a prospect and um, their big tubular provider, in fact, one of the biggest in the world. And, um, you know, they really resonate to the fact that they could be a commodity if they wanted to, which is where their buyers try to push them, or they can be the expert in what they do and deliver the best product on the planet, in which case price doesn't matter, which is where they're going. And, and I agree with them. You can take something that's a commodity and you can let yourself be in that world where you almost don't need a salesperson anymore because of technology and you just go online and order this commodity. Or you can take that same widget and wrap that around expertise in your salesperson's heads, like what's the best way to use this? What's the best way to make sure it works? Well, now that thing that's a commodity has high value because of the knowledge that's in the salesperson's head that is so valuable to the buyer. So good question. You're seeing that whole supply chain thing get turned on its head and it's been needed to happen for, for the last 20 years. And, and I think you can see a whole bunch of fishies driven in the next five to 10 years using technology in supply chain. And even on the procurement side of supply chain too, it's it's crazy how I, I think there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, you know, one of our mutual friends, Marty, is, is working with Supply 20 to uh, working on solving that problem, the the way that the way that it works now is manufacturers actually sell to uh, or have distributors, and the distributors have sales reps, and the sales reps push obviously what's going to give them the most commission um, to sell to the actually end user or the buyer. Um, I think I mean obviously by having a middleman there, if you're able to actually cut that out and just go directly from manufacturer to the buyer um, on some type of open platform, I think that's going to drive a ton of efficiencies because for one, you can have you can have better margins for both people involved. Um, right. You can have a lower lower cost, but you can also make more money for the actual manufacturer. So, um, you know, there's a huge opportunity on the procurement side as well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting about that. If anybody knows the story of Walmart, the genius that Sam Walton had is he realized that middle man he could cut out, that logistics is where the money was. So before Walmart, before Sam Walton, you would have manufacturers deliver stuff to distribution centers, which then would, would deliver it to the actual stores that sold it. And, and 
Sam Walton said, you know what, why don't we be the distribution? Why don't we take it straight from the manufacturer to our stores? And that was the genius that nobody really understands. He cut out that middle layer. So you're absolutely right, Jake. You know, what uh, Marty's doing with Supply 20 is cutting out that middle layer, which once again is an efficiency driven by technology in supply chain. Cool stuff. And I guess we gave exactly. Marty a free plug. <laughs> You're welcome, Marty. Uh, all right, up next, a uh, question from Dustin Moore. He's a VP of sales over at Hayes Oil & Gas. Um, he writes, he was at the GEO convention, but he missed our keynote. What do you think about the changing world of sales in oil and gas? Well, we talked about this for 45 minutes, so maybe we can summarize it. Uh, yeah, and actually, us talking about for 45 minutes is on my YouTube channel. It's on my website. No, 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 Jake. We released it as a podcast, didn't we? Yeah, I think that was two, it was the last episode or two episodes ago? Yeah, yeah, so you can go back and listen to that, although everything we talked about wasn't there. A great cus, uh, question, Dustin. We kind of talked about this in that previous question from Kyle about that whole commodity and then the expertise a salesperson has a lot of value. Um, but oil and gas sales are definitely changing. So one of the things that, that we talked about is things like search engine rankings. Um, just, you know, uh, actually, I can, I can tell you the numbers. I think it was from 2013 to 2016, Supply chain search engine queries has grown 1,700% oil and gas. The reason is, 10 years ago, Bob in the warehouse, if he needed drill stem, he had his top drill stem providers in his head. He knew those companies for 20 years, you know, vendor A, vendor B, vendor C. And then if for some reason A, B, and C couldn't deliver, he had a paper catalog he would pull out to look for what he needed. Well, Bob got laid off, or Bob took a package. Bob is gone, Bob retired. The young kid that just replaced him out of college, when, when his management tells him to get drill stem, what does he do, Jake? First thing he does, he types it in Google, right? And so... Yeah, the young kids, yeah. Yeah. So if your company isn't being ranked in Google for what you do or sell, today it's not going to hurt your business. But I'm telling you, next three years, it's going to kill your business. You're going to have a small competitor who doesn't have the relationships you have, who haven't played golf for 20 years, who doesn't go to the shooting range, go pass you up in the search engine rankings, and they go pass you up in sales. The other thing is the old way of cold calling where you literally picked up a phone and called somebody you didn't know, that doesn't work anymore. It's a complete waste of time. It worked in the past because there was no internet. There was no caller ID. There was no voicemail. Um, and so the only business communication tool was a telephone. So it worked. I, when I was at Bell, I had a whole team of people at cold call for me. And they'd sometimes make me an extra $100,000 a month. The idea of reaching out to somebody you don't know and, and educating them in what you do and then helping them to see if you can help solve a problem, that is still valid. But the tool is no longer telephone. The tool now is social media. And if you don't learn how to use social media, once again, you get left behind. Um, the other thing I see a lot of, is it used to be in oil and gas that sales and marketing were two totally different functions. They didn't even talk to each other. And that has to change. The marketing people are now generating more and more leads than the salespeople. And the sales, but the marketing people need what's in the salespeople's heads. The salespeople need marketing to help drive inbound leads to them so they could actually close deals. So marketing sales needs to partner, and I'm starting to see some companies realize that, and, and, and actually the salespeople are bringing marketing people to client meetings, and the marketing people are helping the salespeople, making sure they get the leads they need. Um, so I see that change as well. Um, also seeing a whole bunch of, of things around sales process change, the way you actually document that, the way you use CRM for a tool. Once again, we're talking about big data here. Um, the, the process of selling has fundamentally changed. When I got started 20 years ago, it was about being an educator. So I would go to my clients, the Halliburton's and the Slumberjays and the Exxon's and the Chevron's and go, here's everything we can do 
Does any of this help you with something? Do you have an interest in this? And then they would buy for me. Well, that worked because there was no internet. And so now somebody at Halliburton can spend five minutes online and find out everything that you do, everything your competitors do, what your prices are, what your competitor prices are. So education is no longer valuable from a sales point of view. In fact, it, it aggravates people. You know, Nobody wants to sit down and hear you ask them what keeps you up at night. That, that disappeared in the 90s. Now sales is about problem solving. And you need to figure out what problems your clients are struggling with and how much it's costing them, and do they want to fix that problem? And when you walk in that first prospect meeting, you need to say, hey, I know you have this problem. I know it cost you $28 million last year. I know you tried to fix it, and you're struggling with it. We can help. So sales is now about problem solving, not about education. And, and that evolution is going to continue. Um, and, and like I said, if you don't get ahead of this, if you have a company out there, if you're a sales leader out there, and you don't help your sales team learn to make this transition, you're going to get left behind. And it's going to happen relatively quickly. It's happening right now, actually. So uh, short answer is go back and listen to a couple episodes ago. <laughs> yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the head, and we d- we dive into it pretty uh, pretty deep on the uh, the keynote presentation. Yeah, and it's um I'll tell you something else that when I did the research the keynote, so the new people are coming into this industry, less than four percent of them subscribe and read the trade mags, right? So that's always been everybody's source of of, of information, which means that if you're still spending marketing dollars on all the uh, trade publication out there, it's your, you're getting ready to waste a lot of money. You can take a quarter of that same money and learn how to do stuff on social media and get much better results. Yep. And like I said, you have no choice. You're either going to learn how to do this or you'll get left behind. It's your choice. All right, guys. So that wraps up the news or not news stories, the questions for the week. Thanks to everybody who wrote in. Uh, if you have a question, you can go to the show notes. Um, I think it's just oil and gas this week slash ask a question. Uh, or just click the link in the show notes. That'll take you there. Um, and we'll be glad to answer that. As long as we don't forget to do <laughs> a first Friday Q&A for July, uh, we'll be sure to answer that. So other than that, we have a winner for the Red Wing Offshore Bag. Yep. Congratulations, Chad. Is it Codner? He's with Stena Drilling. He's a tool pusher. So, Chad, you have won this awesome Red Wing Offshore Bag, which is in super high demand, uber high demand. It's crazy. If any of our listeners would like to win one of these bags, it's really easy. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information. We draw one lucky winner a week. See official site for rules and details. The weekly rig count is up to 984 rigs here in the U.S. That is awesome. It's going the direction we want it to go. Closing in on 1,000. We'll be there before we know it. Uh, events on deck we have a couple events coming up we have the vector flare and pilot lunch and learn so if you want to learn about flares <laughs> uh, go check this out it's free great lunch uh, you have to uh, email jay walker at vector uh, gag.com to rsvp jake jay can put a link in the show notes and that's that's this tuesday june 6th uh, then we have the business connection club this is a really cool organization that just started and they're basically they, they're letting people come in um and then they're bringing in um, executives, professionals, uh, entrepreneurs, and actually different people from different government consulates, and you just mingle and you get to meet each other. So it's it's a great idea. I've yet to make it. I, I do want to make one of these, um, but we have the link in the show notes here. Um, I think it's free, or if there is a charge for it, it's it's very small. But I think I think it's free. I think you get drinks and uh, and appetizers with it as well. Now that's Wednesday, June seventh. Um, it's here in Houston um, at the. Um, uh, connect at the, um, the Houston Club. So Jacob put a link in those show notes. If you want to learn about all these oil and gas events, the easiest thing to do is go to sign up for a monthly email newsletter. Jacob put a link for that. It just went out. Uh, we take all the oil and gas events plus uh, stuff that people, the public's not aware of, 
free passes to things and we stick in your inbox once a month. It's a useful tool. I'm not bragging, um, but we put this together to make it useful for ourselves years ago. We thought we'd just share it with our listeners out there. Uh, Jake talked about the first Friday Q&A. Please, 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 if you have a question, submit it. We don't care what it is. If we use your question, give a big shout out. And if you want to remain anonymous, we can do that as well. We're happy to do that. Uh, reviews. We need more reviews. Do we have any new reviews, Jake? Uh, a couple new ones. Uh, one is from Buzz Lyons. So that was the same guy who wrote in. That was uh, Brent who wrote in to one of the questions. Uh, he writes, I'm not in the industry, but I have a high level of interest in the oil and gas industry. My interest is in from the investment angle, and this forum helps me cut through tons of published data to get informed and concise perspective. Thank you for your commitment to the production, uh, and keep the great job. Another one, uh, always informative, from C. Baldwin. Great podcast. I listen mostly during my commute, and it's a great way to uh, stay abreast with the latest trends in the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Good stuff. So come on, folks. Take the five minutes. Leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us uh, rank higher in the search engines. and also helps your peers find us because they see all those four and five stars and they go, oh, that must be a good podcast to listen to. Uh, besides that, you need to join a LinkedIn group. If you haven't done that yet, it's uh, Oil and Gas Global Network. It's very easy to find. It's, it's the, the, the sister to all of the podcasts. Um, and speaking of Oil and Gas Global Network, Jake, we just launched a, a Twitter handle so it's official OGGN on Twitter and we're up to over 7,000 followers which is crazy it's which is, booming it's awesome we also have a Facebook page go check that out it's a uh, uh, OGGN on Facebook uh, group um, other than that uh, our, we have the website if you're listening to this on on Stitcher or Google Play you also go check out the website it's oilandglassthisweek.com give us your email address on the website we won't spam you and you will be the first to know about anything that's coming out that's different that's new uh, the second group to know everything will be the LinkedIn group. So you probably join to do both of those. Um, other than that, it's getting kind of late on a Friday. I'm ready to pour a glass of wine. You ready to get out of here? Yeah, sounds good, man. All right, folks, do great work. Pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.